hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, we've had a busy week of developments. Uh, the eyes have really come off COVID-19, the illness, and there's a lot of news about uh, the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, anticipated food shortages, energy shortages in Europe, talk about climate change, lots of news about relative uh, sudden gender confusion. So I took the opportunity in this show to go down to Central America, to El Salvador, and I had a chance to interview uh, uh, Maria Eugenia Barrentios, who's a wonderful physician down there. She's innovated. She created a network of doctors. She treated tens of thousands of patients through her network with COVID-19. And she came up with conclusions separately, very similar to that of Dr. Sankarit Chetty in South Africa. And you had a chance to hear Dr. Chetty uh, several episodes ago. So I wanted to dedicate the long format to this interview since I had a chance to reach down to Central America. And you're really, really going to enjoy the interview. This is going to be the show for today. So let's go ahead and join on uh, on with the interview with Dr. Barentios from El, um, El Salvador in Central America. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're heading in to cold and flu season this fall. And whether it's influenza or SARS-CoV-2 or yet another pathogen that's going to enter our house, keep in mind your best defense for clearing the air and basically cleansing your house of pathogens is the Genesis Fogger. The Genesis Fogger works by using HOCL. It's a dry mist fogger. can be used to uh, sterilize and freshen up rooms, bathrooms, particularly elderly patients, those who are sick. Uh, we want to make sure the room is aired out and also uh, basically decontaminated with the Genesis Fogger. Go to our website, America Out Loud, look on the banner bar and click Genesis Fogger for a discount on your purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
these days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm so excited because I finally have gotten a breakthrough interview. Uh, it's my great pleasure to invite to the microphone Dr. Maria Eugenia Brantos from El Salvador and Central America. I've mentioned her name so many times nationally and internationally. She's an innovator. Uh, she uh, went, went to her uh, her uh, uh, post-high school studies, including uh, undergraduate, the equivalent of undergraduate MD degree in her country of El Salvador. Uh, she went on to Jacksonville, Florida, had additional studies there. Uh, qualified actually for additional training and work in the United States, returned to uh, El Salvador. And she has been in what's called in her country general practice, but she's clearly been an innovator and she faced COVID-19 uh, from the very beginning. So I wanted to give her the floor and tell us her journey with COVID-19, what, uh, how she innovated with uh, treatments for the illness, and then moved on to make critical observations with COVID-19 vaccination. Dr. Brentios, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you very much, Dr. Peter McCullough. It's uh, also a pleasure to be um, with you, talking about all that we've been through, because it's been a nightmare, uh, and it shouldn't have been. So uh, I am very pleased that we've, uh, we are in touch and I, I can tell you my experience from my perspective. Um, since the beginning in December of 2019, I've heard the Chinese government talking about the COVID-19 disease and how it was uh, coronavirus. And they said it was like a novel coronavirus and all the the things I was listening is was like to make people fear. And I remember that one third of the flu uh, is because of coronavirus. So I was not afraid. I went to study SARS and MERS, the two diseases that were before this one. And one thing that called my attention is why SARS and MERS that were the same beta coronavirus family, they didn't go into the into a pandemic. They just stayed there. Like SARS in 2002 was in China, and then MERS was in 2009 in the Arab world. So it was very weird that why this one that was similar, the same symptoms, the same treatment, the same management, why we were seeing it so, so different. So when I studied SARS and MERS, the first thing I noticed was that we always thought that virus uh, gave us pneumonia. 
So then I realized that viruses last only one week and that we have to treat very well the virus stage because it's just when our body responds to a uh, virus that is non-living particle and that what we are seeing it's a immune response. So when I knew it was an inflammatory process, then I knew that the treatment was an anti-inflammatory agent. And since they are, they belong to the flu uh, world, so we have to also give them an anti-flu medicine. So that's how I started treating patients, uh, not only in El Salvador, but all my patients that went to live to Europe, like Spain, France, and uh, even we treated patients in Africa and in Australia. And then I realized we were all the same and that the, the symptoms were the same and the patients were um, being treated in one week, they were okay. So I was not seeing all the, the problems they were facing in Europe, all the death and all the way they were handling. So I, I knew something weird was on the air. Well, I tell you what, um, you really caught my attention uh, in our pre-discussion when you told me that when you faced patients with the virus, you never wore a mask or a hazmat suit or used hand sanitizer. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I've never used a mask, never used alcohol hell. I just wash my hands with soap and, and water as I was shown since I studied medicine. I knew that if we face the virus, if we face the problem, we were going to get immune. So that's what my thinking, I never, um, I, all my patients came into my clinic without the mask. I went into the COVID zones here in El Salvador in the, in the hospitals, never wore a mask, never. I just, I got COVID when I, in October of, 19, of 2019, I, I had COVID. I, I didn't know it was COVID, but because I knew the symptoms, like the, the frontal headache, the ache in my body, the, the cough that was a dry cough, I then I knew I I had it on October 2019 and another a lot of patients coming from Spain and from Britain and from around the world had it. But because we didn't knew the the virus, we treated it as we normally would treat a respiratory viruses and, and everything was OK. No one died. No one went into the hospital. No was no one was intubated. So that's how I knew that there was something evil behind. Something was not good. The OMS was telling us totally the contrary, what I was doing. Uh, they were sending people to their houses without any treatment at all, just vitamins and paracetamol that we know it's just an analgesic. And people were just hurrying to the hospital late, very late when it was, when, when we had a bacterial pneumonia, the viral stage was over. So people never died of COVID-19. People died of bacterial pneumonia and its complications. Now, let me ask you, uh, so you believe you had it in October of 2019, really before the, the announcement of the virus uh, out of Wuhan, China. Did you subsequently get sick in 2020 or 2021 with a, a second case? Never again, doctor. And that's uh, my conclusion. When I talk to my people, you know, just my family, just my family, we are more than, than, than 50 people. 
We've just had COVID once. My mother took hydrochloroquine. She never got COVID, never. And she's 80 years old. And she went even with me to see uh, like patients like her parents and they had COVID. My mother never got COVID. So I knew hydroxychloroquine was the preventive medicine because it changed the pH of the mucous membrane where the receptors are. So I knew that was the answer. And that was my question to Dr. Fauci. I really wanted, I, I really want in the, in the deep of my heart to have an interview directly with Dr. Fauci. And I have to ask him because I'm just a general doctor. I don't have a Harvard diploma. I don't have a Stanford diploma, but I knew exactly how to treat my patients. And it was very weird that they were telling us that hydrochloroquine was uh, a toxic drug. And I give that drug to my patient that have arthritis. So I knew I had patients with four years taking hydroxychloroquine without any, any at all side effects. And uh, the, I, there were many points we have to talk with the people that were guiding us in, in, in this pandemic, because this pandemic would have been no pandemic if we've treated patients with anti-inflammatory agents since day two and the an, anti-flu medicine together. So um, my surprise was that I had COVID in 2019, and I've already been treating patients with the same symptoms in El Salvador. Uh, reason why, since I was director of a um, couple of clinics here in El Salvador, I just, uh, in my, in the um, public, um, like Twitter and, and all that stuff, I, I put in that there was a new virus in El Salvador. I, I said it. I said it on October 2019, and the symptoms are, I said, uh, headache in, in the frontal, frontal headache, uh, ache of your body, ache of the lumbar area, pain in your articulations like the, your, your knees, uh, and all that stuff. And also I told them, we, you're going to have a dry cough. And it'll go away exactly in seven days if you do the right treatment. Now, um, what was your basic treatment protocol? If you, I assume you started patients pretty early at home. What, what were you advising? Yeah, uh, as soon as my patient called me and they, uh, and they would uh, refer to me that they have their body ache, their headaches, and starting like a, a light cough, I would start with ibuprofen. Uh, it could be 200 or 400 milligrams, depending on the patient, if it was like an adolescence or it was an adult. And then I would give three times a day for eight days, exactly eight days. And then I would give an uh, flu medicine that could be in the States. I use Dayquil, Dayquil. I never use Nightquil, just Dayquil three times a day and just one tablet gel three, three times a day for seven days. And then people with asthma or allergies, I would start with nebulizations or inhalers twice a day for seven days. And then people with diabetes, I would treat very well their diabetes. So I have their glycemia under 100. 
So if I kept the glycemia under 100 in, in, uh, um, early in the morning, then I knew my antibiotics will, will work if there was a beginning of a bronchitis or a bronchopneumonia because a bacteria took advantage. So for me, the only patient that was really on risk was the patient with diabetes, not even the patient with hypertension or cardiac problems because I had patient with um, that had before like a myocardial infarction and they were in, in um, treatment and they, they did excellently. They did okay. And there are many things we have to, we have to clear to people because people are very afraid, some of them, of ibuprofen. They think ibuprofen will uh, harm their kidneys. And also they think that ibuprofen will higher their, their pressure. And if you study the pharmacology, then we understand if you give ibuprofen in the right dosages, 200 or 400 milligrams, three times a day for, the, for eight days, you're, you're not going to have any problem at all. Any problem at all. I gave in some patients ibuprofen. I, al I also treat patients with Aleve and treat other persons with indomethacin. So I tried three different anti-inflammatory agents and the patients that were allergic to those anti-inflammatory agents, then I used prednisone. And what I did with prednisone, I used 10 milligrams three times a day for seven days and excellent results with patients that were allergic to ibuprofen. Now, let me uh, just uh, clarify for our listeners. Now, um, the ibuprofen, we understand we've got that. The, um, the nebulizer, we've got that. <laughs> Dayquil is the combination of acetaminophen, 325 milligrams, 10 milligrams of dextromethorphan, and five milligrams of phenylephrine. You just highlighted um, the range of anti-inflammatories. What about antibiotics? You meant, mentioned antibiotics. Which ones were you using? Okay, uh, I'm just going to clear before going to antibiotics. I'm going to clear up that when I use Dayquil, I just uh, took very careful care of the patients with hypertension and also careful with the patients that were like very sensitive to, to ephedrines. Mm -hmm. Because then what I did is in the patients that were very sensitive to ephedrine, then I, I moved to uh, what I call... Um, just uh, paracetamol and antihistamines, and I just did the decongestant to, um, sorry, to get rid of the congestion. I use nebulizations or nasal sprays, okay, just to help them with, with this problem. And what was in the uh, sprays? What was mm -hmm. in the nebulizers in the sprays? In the nebulizers, what I use is two cc's of saline solution, saline solution, and I use uh, budesonin, budesonida, mm -hmm. budesonin. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's Budesonide. how you pronounce it. Right. Okay. Yes, it's an asteroid that you use in mm -hmm. nebulizations. Uh, the name in the States is pulmicort. Yes. And, okay. And, okay, so we have that solidified. Uh, um, and, that's, and that's very solid. I just want to make a comment that I worked on a protocol and actually published it with Fazio and colleagues from Italy. And we became convinced that 
that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, so ibuprofen or, um, or naproxen sodium, which is in a leaf, that they're a basis of treatment. It sounds like you agree. And I think head-to-head are far better than paracetamol or Tylenol. It, totally, because paracetamol and Tylenol, they are not good anti-inflammatory agents. That's it. So if you use those, you can you, you do very well in the analgesic area, but you do very bad in the inflammatory process. Mm-hmm. So you, if you use it, as I did in DayQuil, what I did is use a very low dosage just to help the people with the, the pain, the ache of the body and the ache of the articulations. But to, to do the anti-inflammatory, I use ibuprofen. And using ibuprofen and using naproxen, what I can tell you is naproxen, if people use it three times a day, because sometimes people use it as as they use ibuprofen because they think it's every eight hours and naproxen is every 12 hours. But when people use it every eight hours, then they higher their pressure. But ibuprofen, giving it three times a day in 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams, I never got one patient with higher, with high blood pressure that got worse. Not even one patient. Yeah, I have to say, I, I never have either, and I studied this pretty carefully. I'm an internist and cardiologist, so I have lots of patients with hypertension. And almost every patient with this illness, actually, the blood pressure lowers. It actually goes down. And I think that's the reason why the Dayquil, which has some phenylephrine, a small amount, is perfectly fine. Now let's get to the antibiotics. So you mentioned okay. this after seven days. Uh, it's the viral phase is essentially done, but patients still can be sick. That's right. Uh, so the patients that you don't do very well in the anti-inflammatory area, they that what happens is, well, number one, I think that the receptors for COVID-19 or SARS or MERS are in the upper respiratory system. That's what, that's my conclusion. So when you have the virus that adapts to the receptors in the upper respiratory system, then your immune system starts the inflammatory process in order to attack or destroy the the viral particle. Then if you don't do very well there, the inflammatory process is going to keep on going down to to your lower respiratory system. And then you're going to have your bronchies, your uh, your alveoli, or inflammation over there. So when inflammatory process gets to your pulmonary area, then the bacteria that lives there, that are part of of your flora, are going to start uh, growing and attacking your tissues. So we mostly have streptococcus, streps, and staphylococcus, and also... Um, you can have, uh, the other one we isolated, I was thinking about, um, uh, well, you can have Moraxella and have Brahminella. You can have other strains. So, so what was your antibiotic approach there? So my, the first antibiotics I used was, uh, number one, the combination of amoxicillin and clavulanic acid with levofloxacin. I use the b- both together. Um, amoxicillin and clavulanic acid, I gave it twice a day for seven to 10 days, depending on the case. 
and levofloxacin, I, I use or 500 milligrams or 750 milligrams where I can use it one, once a day for seven days. That was an excellent treatment, excellent treatment. I mean, over 90% of the patients work excellently with that combination. Right. So now, now, was, so, but so of all the patients you treated, um, what percent of patients went on to get the amoxicillin clavulanate? We call that augmentin in the United States or levofloxacin. What percent would you say got that in your protocol? Okay, l l let me say this. The patients that got to me early stage disease, like when they were like in the first three days of disease, 90% got, uh, got uh, clear or, or um, well-treated uh, without antibiotics, 90%. Okay. And, and, and before you leave, that group, that group, what percent of that group, that early group, got budesonide or got prednisone? None. Okay. So budesonide and prednisone were in the more difficult group or later group, as well as the antibiotics, it sounds like. That's right. Only in the 10%. And okay. in the other 9% that went well with the just the the, the treatment of ibuprofen and and, and uh, anti-flu medicine, only the the people that were asthmatic, I used nebulizations very early. So probably in that 90%, we have another probably 7% that I use budesonid or inhalers or nebulizations mm -hmm. just to take care of them. Because I don't, I don't wait to get the bronchospasm. I prevent the bronchospasm. Got it. Now, did okay. you did you go on to use uh, aspirin or any anticoagulants in any patients? Yes, I did. Um, in some patients, I had already patients that were with uh, their treatment for cardiovascular disease that were all that were taken aspirin, like eighty-one milligrams per day. I just never took it off. I just added ibuprofen. And that's another thing. Most doctors think they cannot uh, use ibuprofen if the patient is, is using or aspirin or um, a, a blood thinner. They think they cannot use it. And the pharmacology says you can use ibuprofen with the um, blood thinners if you use it in the correct dosage and in short terms, like less than 10 days. So I did that and I had no problem with the patients with cardiovascular diseases using ibuprofen at all, not, not even one problem. That's excellent. Yeah, I had that same experience. I think people need to know that, you know, we watch ca patients carefully for bleeding, bleeding risks, but short-term use is very different than long-term use. Well, listen, we are talking about the Barentios protocol, but so far for acute treatment, you have not mentioned hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, Paxlovid, molnipiravir. Did you actually use one of these antivirals in your usual approach? At all. I never used that. Never. And I'm going to explain why. Number one, because I've started treating patients since January 2000 22, knowing I was treating COVID-19. Then I started having patients from Mexico 
And the protocol of Mexico in February and March, it was ivermectin, acitromycin, and paracetamol. That was the combinations doctors in Mexico were using. And these patients were getting into the, into the second stage of pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia. So I knew that ivermectin was not doing what they were telling me. Because what I was hearing is that ivermectin in 72 hours or 48 hours would stop the replication of the virus. But I was not seeing that. So what I did is I went to study the, um, the, the study they were doing in Australia about uh, ivermectin. And I found out that the government of Mexico was paying for that study. Also, I found out that they stopped it in the stage of the animal stage of experimentation because they found out that in order for ivermectin to change the pH of the mucous membrane or change the pH, they needed very high dosages that were toxic for humans. So I knew that something was wrong there. And all my patients from Mexico and Honduras also was using ivermectin. They, the, the people that were over 50 years old, they were all getting pneumonias. So I knew that ivermectin was not doing the work that they were telling me. And the doctors that were having like uh, good results with ivermectin, they were combining ivermectin with prednisone. So I knew that what, what was work, doing the work was prednisone because it was acting as a very good anti-inflammatory agent and not ivermectin. You know, uh, I had on the report, Dr. Sankaran Chetty from South Africa, you know, and he worked uh, very independently from you and, and me and, and other doctors. And he had concluded that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were not needed at all. And so he focused on a similar approach to, to yours with using non-steroidal anti-inflammatories for sure. He relied on a lot of antihistamines. He used uh, cyproheptidine. He used a promethid promethazine, which is an, an anti-nausea, antihistamine. Mm -hmm. He used a, a leukotriene inhibitor, Montelukast, and then he relied on aspirin. He would use aspirin more heavily. And, um, uh, and we had a seminar actually early, I believe in 2020, and then later on in 2021. And I do find it interesting that people from around the world innovated, came up with similar conclusions. You know, in the United States and Canada, Australia, Europe, there was a hyper focus on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And there was less of a focus on anti-inflammatories in corticosteroids. And I have tended to agree with you and Dr. Chetty that I think the, the far more active drugs are the anti-inflammatories than the antivirals. And that's right. The thing is, if, you go, if you're going to use the antivirals uh, drugs that I did with my mom, I use hydroxychloroquine, that's fine. If you use it as a preventive drug or if you use it in the three days of the disease, but most of the patients will look for a doctor in their second or third day of disease. So you're late. You're late. You have to start with anti-inflammatory agents. What, what do you think about the U.S. National Institutes of Health guidelines in October of, of 2020? They said we shouldn't treat patients at all at home, let them get very sick. And when they come in the hospital, only when they need ox oxygen, 
they should start remdesivir. If I have to use one word, it would be very, very hard. Wow. Very hard. Wow. Because, because I, I, can't, I can't believe that I've been a general doctor in El Salvador, graduating from Universidad Evangelica del Salvador. You know? I, I, I can't think that having in the States that kind of scientific people with that kind of diplomas would come out with no treatment at all and send people to their houses with no treatment at all, only an analgesic and vitamins. And even for me, it was a perversion to keep adding vitamins to the, to the protocol because it was telling the people, I am doing something, you know, I am, I am giving you vitamins. They were no, doing nothing at all. And when I asked patients in the States, do you have a hemogram? Do you have a, a, an x-ray? They didn't have anything. And if I tell them, can you get a hemogram? Can you get your own exams? I cannot if a doctor doesn't sign. So in, in, what, in, in what hands is your health? I mean, the one's going to die is you, not the doctor. How can we get a hemogram so I can see if you are in the viral stage or you are in the bacterial stage? Post-COVID, that's post-COVID. No one died of COVID. People died of bacterial pneumonia, and now I am 100% sure of that. And you see still people talking about chronic COVID, talking about COVID, and everything is COVID. And that's not fair, Dr. McCullough. That's not fair. Now let's let's move into your innovation in using laboratory tests. You just mentioned the hemogram, or we call it the CBC, complete blood count. Um, uh, tell us about your use of labs in acute COVID. Okay, um, you know here in El Salvador, hemograms. The cost of that is three dollars fifty cents. So number one, if you're a doctor. If you can examine your patient, like uh, personally what I did, because all my patients in El Salvador could come to my clinic since day one. And without a mask and me, myself, without a mask, I will examine my patients. So what did I find with my patients that had COVID-19? Okay, their eyes, no problem at all. So I knew the virus didn't enter the eyes. Because if they enter the eyes, like some viruses, you're going to have conjunctivitis. I don't know if that's the way I should pronounce it. So I knew the eyes was not the entry of this virus. The tympanic membrane, clear. No problem at all with the ears. Then the pharynx would be a little red. And that's it, a little red. No infection, no bacterial infections, no added problems. Then the nose, I had congestion. So I knew I couldn't treat the patient just with, with antihistamines because I had congestion. And if I don't get, get, get rid of the congestion, I knew this congestion was going to go down to my bronchus and I'm going to have worse problems. So that's why I didn't use only antihistamines. That's why I use combined with decongestants. Then after that, when I went to listen to the heart, 
the heart was perfect, no problems at all in the first stage. The lungs were completely clear. In some patients, I had the, um, what I call the murmullo vesicular. It's like how you should listen, the air going in and out was a little restricted. So I knew there was inflammation and I had to treat the inflammatory process. So that's like the stage one of the COVID-19 where you have to work and, and um, treat your patient with, with excellent results. Let me just and, interrupt you there just for yeah. a second. I also examined acute COVID patients mm -hmm. and their lungs and, and what you're describing about vesicular breathing or, um, you know, it's an abnormal lung sound. It's not, it's not the, the sound of a consolidative pneumonia and it's not the sound of a pleural effusions, but it's an abnormal lung exam. And, and I also, too, relied on that. When I had patients with an abnormal lung exam, that you know, many times was the trigger for steroids, for corticosteroids. That's right. That's right. And in the right dosages. I mean, some, some doctors use prednisone in the higher dose. That's 50 milligrams per day. And I am against that because I don't use the top, you know, dosage. I use 30 milligrams per day, and it was enough to, to help the patients. If you use 50 milligrams, you have to be very careful with the diabetic patients because you're going to hire their sugar, and then the antibiotics are not going to work. So you, you have you, to take you, that into account. You, you know, the, the very first protocol I published, I think we were at 60 milligrams of prednisone, and then by the second protocol, this was pretty rapidly in 2020, we settled at yes. 40 mm -hmm. And uh, because in the United States, our, our tablet size, you can order 20 milligram tablet size. So I would just have them take 20 milligrams twice a day and then pretty rapidly taper it down to just 10 milligrams twice a day. Uh, but what do you think about dexamethasone six milligrams a day, which became a, a standard? Dexamethasone, if you use it at six milligrams per day, that's fine. But we had doctors using it every eight hours. That was a problem. So if you use dexamethasone like once a day, four milligrams or six milligrams a day for three or four days, that's fine. That's fine. And four days, it's more than enough. By that time, your protein C reactive will lower down until 10. So yeah, that's so, fine. So yeah, so your point is you don't need it for very long. And, and I agree. Now tell us about, in El Salvador, tell us about COVID testing, PCR or antigen testing. Did you have that available to you or you, were you relying on the clinical syndrome? Okay, um, just before going to the PCRs, let's finish the hemogram you asked me. I'm very sorry. I just went into talking to other, talking to you about the examination. The, when I send my patients, I send all of my patients, hemogram, protein C-reactive, and some patients, fibrinogen, that it's the unit that is that it's used in DIMR-D. DIMR-D is three times the cost of fibrinogen. So I use fibrinogen, quantified, and it's cheaper, and it's give you the same idea if the, your patient is going to uh, form coagulations. Uh, by the way, we make a little pause just to, to explain why why the patients with um, uh, 
better coronavirus diseases like COVID-19 would get um, blood clots in the capillaries. And it's because these viruses have an antigen named hemagglutinin. This antigen, as the name sounds, it agglutinates the heme group of the red blood cells. And as they do that, platelets will add to form the clot. So that's why using like a patient that were using aspirin was okay. And most of the patients, if you treat the, the inflammatory process from the first 48 hours, they wouldn't, won't need the blood thinner because the body would, with, will respond by itself to that problem. But you have to have that on mind because if your fibrinogen or your dimmer D goes up, then you have to start your blood thinner on time. Or if you see the platelets that are going down, then use blood thinner because the platelets are going down because they are, they are um, aggregating or accumulating where the, where the red blood cells are forming a clot. So sometimes doctors think that because the platelets are coming down, they cannot use ibuprofen, they cannot use uh, blood thinners, and it's wrong because the platelets are coming down in these viral diseases because the platelets are in the capillaries forming clots. So the faster you move to use uh, blood thinners or anti-inflammatory agents, the faster you're gonna stop the platelets going down. If you let the platelets go down without using blood thinners or using anti-inflammatory agents, what's gonna happen is that the, the body, our response, our self-defenses are gonna start to anticoagulate by itself using thromboxane and what we have in our systems to uh, disintegrate the blood clots. And then you're gonna have a mess because that's what we call um, coagulation intravascular disseminada that's disseminated intravascular, uh, you know, respond. Well, okay, so we've covered so far uh, D-dimer, fibrinogen, yeah. C-reactive protein, the rationale, I think you've laid out beautifully, the platelet, the platelet count, but tell us about the white blood cell count and the, you know, the differential. Okay, I have exactly how it works. The first week, COVID-19, SARS and MERS will lower the white blood cells between 3,500 white blood cells to 4,500 blood, uh, white blood cells between that then you're going to have the uh, platelet counts in adults are going to lower the 200,000 platelets. The um, monocytes percentage is going to go up over 8% monocytes. Uh, it's going to range between 8 to 14% monocytes. Then the... Uh, neutrophiles, if you don't have bacterias coming, then you're going to have your neutrophiles uh, lower a little bit. They're going to be between um, 45 
to 50%, and then you're going to have your lymphocytes go up a little. That's without bacteria. You're going to have your lymphocytes between 30 to 40%. Then your um, your basophils are zero, and your eosinophils are going to be between one to three percent. When the bacteria comes in 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 the scene in the scenery, then you're gonna you're gonna have your neutrophils going up over sixty two percent, and that's something to to let doctors know because lab tests will tell you that uh, neutrophile percentage, it's okay if it gets to 70%. That's an error. That's an error. The percentage of neutrophiles in a healthy adult patient should be between 45 to 62. If you are over 62, then watch because an infection, a bacterial infection is starting somewhere and it's just the beginning. So then you know that the, a bacteria is starting and you have to work with antibiotics. You have to see how the platelets are, if they are going down or they are uh, going up. So you know you're, you're gonna use an, a blood thinner. And um, you, you, the, the, this is something that could make doctors like uh, confuse themselves. If you have a viral disease, the first week, you know your white blood cells are gonna be low between 3,000 to 4,000. If you have low white blood cells and a bacteria comes into action, don't expect to have white blood cells of 10,000, 12,000. When you have just a bacterial infection by its own, what you're going to have is the white blood cells are going to start climbing up, but you're going to have just like 5,500, 6,500, because you come from a bacteria stage. Now, let me but ask you, let me ask you, yeah. uh, what percent of all your patients did you get a CBC or hemogram? 90%. Okay. Now, uh, quickly, because we want to make sure we finish uh, on time, tell us about, in, um, in El Salvador, about PCR testing or antigen testing for COVID. Okay. I knew, I knew that PCR testing was something that not, that's not reliable because I studied what's the PCR and, and, and all that stuff. I knew that there were a lot of antigens that you have, like, um, cross reactions with other viruses the same that are the same and uh so i i i didn't rely on pcr tests i never sent not even one patient to have the pcr test done they came with the pcr done because the patients were afraid so that's how i get to know the patient that had a pcr positive with uh with non-covid 19 and patients with a, a PCR negative, and they did have COVID-19. So I knew that the PCR didn't work. I know that they don't work. We, we don't have COVID-19 since March 2022. We have no COVID now. But, but so, so let me ask you, um, uh, what percent of patients did you treat that had no COVID testing? That had no like PCR test. Yeah, then? no PCR, no antigen test. It was just a clinical diagnosis. Uh, probably, probably forty percent. 
Okay. Okay. And then what was the roughly the total number of patients you treated over the course of the crisis? Very difficult to tell you, doctor, because I had groups of doctors all over the world mm-hmm. um, helping me. So if we get all together, uh, let let me tell you that I've I've um, I lost numbers, but I know I'm, I'm going to say we because I have doctors mm-hmm. in Colombia, in Venezuela, in Honduras, in Guatemala. Um, all around the world. So I think we've treated uh, oh, uh, the first year or year and a half. Whole time. We've, 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 I, 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 we've done more than, more than, I don't know. I can't even say the number. I can't in, in even the say the number. In the more thousands? than 10,000, more than 20,000, more than 25,000 patients. So, so, so absolutely huge number. Now you mentioned something interesting. In El Salvador, no COVID since March of 2022. That's right. You have just very isolated cases of mm-hmm. patients that probably or don't have the, uh, hadn't had uh, COVID or um, they were like in the rural area. And sometimes they came to the city and probably get it. But I mean, now I understand the, the microbiology I read when I was a student in, 19, in 1990, the Joseph Melnick and Ernest Jowett's microbiology. There, if you read everything about coronavirus, then you understand a lot of what's what's been going on then you understand that when you have a new virus it lasts for three years that's like uh the normal but now that i you know chase or took care about covid19 it really lasted two years and a half two years and a half for the population to be like immune enough to get just like isolated cases then then on that's pretty so, that's pretty similar to the the duration of the spanish flu that's 19- true that, uh-huh. all the virus work the same dr peter yeah. mccullough all the viruses expect the world to have their system and, and and last for two years and a half and you know h h1 n1 the spanish flu it was in an in an era or in a period of time that we didn't have any anti-inflammatory agents at all. We didn't right. have ibuprofen. We didn't right. have naproxen. No, 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 so no, then no. you understand why it was that that number of people dying. Right, it's true, and and of course, uh, you know, with modern day influenza, the, the the fatal illness is really a secondary staphylococcal pneumonia. It's, certainly, I've seen that in my practice. Now, let me let's change our direction. In the last few minutes, we just have a few minutes left. You are seeing some patients who have taken the COVID nineteen vaccine. What are you observing in terms of laboratory phenomenon? Uh, number one, I clearly understand that that. The vaccines were just uh, CoronaVac, Sinovac, and Sputnik. Those are vaccines because they are elaborated from the virus, an attenuated virus. So I knew those were vaccines. So they would act as a vaccine, either giving the patient the symptoms and the, the disease or if the patient had already had some kind of immunity, 
just go along with non-problem at all. And then we had the jabs or the injections or the genetic material, that's the messenger RNA. I knew that was going to give us a problem because number one, it's something done in a lab. It's not a natural thing. It's not done from nature. It's, it's manipulated. So I knew we're going to have problems. And since we didn't have the experience at all uh, of a long-term problem, uh, we're going to face real, real stuff uh, a year after the injections. So what I've seen with injections like Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and um, AstraZeneca, if I can say this as a whole, all of them are lowering the white blood cells, all of them. Of all the patients that I'm receiving since the vaccines, I only have probably a 0.01% with good white blood cells. The rest are between 3,500 white blood cells and 6,000 white blood cells. And even I'm talking about kids, I'm talking about 10 years old, 14 years old kids, with white blood cells between 4,000 and 5,000. Wow. Do you, think, uh, do you think these are indicative of suppressing the immune system? Um, I don't know if, if I would say suppressing the immune system, but I would say clearly damaging the immune system. And then what about D-dimer, platelet count, some of these other indices? Okay, the platelets are going down after the second shot. So the first shot is not doing much thing with the platelets, but once you have two shots or more, then you're going to start lowering your white blood cells. So the patients that have, that are calling me, that already have three or four um, jabs, then I have them with very low platelets from 80,000 to 150,000. And then finally, what are you seeing in terms of um, side effects, uh, injuries, disabilities, deaths? Uh, what, what clinically is going on in Salvador that you see in your practice and your network of doctors who've taken the vaccine? Okay, I, w I was telling you something. We're starting a new pandemic, I told you. And this is the pandemic of the post-vaccination. And it's a pandemic of patients with a weaker immune system or a damaged immune system that they are getting bacterial infections very easily every month, every three months, every four months. People that were very, very healthy before. And this is because the, the way the health system has been um, handled, it's been very wrong. It's been very wrong because in, in science, you don't vaccinate or put injections to your patients for injections in less than a year and a half. That's never seen because the difference between a kid's schedule of vaccination is that a kid has its immune system immature. 
So the response of a kid with the vaccines is totally different from the response of an adult that has a mature immune system. We are doing more harm than good putting these vaccines to the, to the population in general. Because I can understand we had vaccines before because we didn't have treatments. I understand that in the 1900s. What I don't understand, it's been right now in 2022 with the best technology we'd had ever, the best lab tests, x-rays, tags, MRIs. I can't conceive that we can't have excellent treatments in order for the patients to have their, their normal immune system to work. Because we all know that having the disease and working with the disease correctly is having a nature, a natural immune response that would last most of the times forever, forever, you know? Wow. Well, you know, I tell you, that was a great, great finishing set of sentences right there. You heard it. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. I'd love to have you come back to the program for a deeper dive on, on the vaccines, but I wanted to have the McCullough Report audience. And you know, our audience is worldwide. We have a lot of people listening in Australia, Europe, uh, South Africa, United States, South America. I wanted them to hear from you that your innovation, your courage, and your careful observation has led to very good outcomes in thousands upon thousands of patients. And your approach is different than other doctors, but similar yet to others around the world. And it's evidence-based and it's careful. And most importantly, it's effective. It's very effective. So I want to thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you very much, Dr. Peter McCullough. I uh, appreciate you contacting me. Uh, sorry for my English. I don't practice it that much, but I try to do my best. Uh, and, you, did, uh, you did great. You did great. <laughs> and keep sending me these great messages. Dr. Brentius and I keep, keep in touch over one of the uh, cell phone apps. And I've learned so much about it. I'd love to visit you someday down in El Salvador. Great, great. You're going to have a great time in a very small country, but a loving country. And to end um, the conversation, I would say it was not courage, Dr. Peter McCullough. It was love for what I do. It's to cure people, my mission. That's beautiful. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.